Good morning, church. Have a seat. Thanks for being here with us today. Uh, this morning, we are continuing, as Brandon just read, our sermon series in the book of Micah. And um, in this book, we are, uh, these last couple of weeks have been difficult and weighty. One of the sections of scripture where um, we see the just anger of God, and it can rightly so uh, make us a bit uncomfortable. And uh, today, we'll kind of continue in that as we uh, seek to prepare our hearts for next week. Because next week, um, the tone of Micah begins to change somewhat as the here the season begins to change. And we enter into Advent season next week. And uh, we will spend a few weeks um, looking at the prophecy of Micah as he declares the hope that we have um, because of the child to be born. But this morning, uh, we are in Micah chapter 3. And as you could hear, it is a bit of a graphic chapter. It is not all rainbow and sunshine when you're talking about chopping people up. It is a, it is a hard word to read. And uh, as this morning, as just a, a bit of a preface, um, just taking a moment to consider uh, these, these weighty passages of Scripture where God's anger seems to be maybe overwhelming and, and off-putting. Um, that certainly seems, has been the case in Micah 1 and 2 a bit. I just want to I want to remind you, just something I was thinking of this week, as I considered just how even those parts of Scripture tend to hit me. Sometimes the wrath of God revealed, especially through the prophets, is a good reminder for us that God does not owe us an explanation. Sometimes uh, we don't really think about it that way. Oftentimes it can be, how, how can God... Uh, how could God deal with people in such a harsh way? And sometimes there is an answer to those things. And we've certainly talked a great deal about God's justness. But sometimes it's important just to be reminded that God owes us nothing. He is the creator. He is the judge. He gives life and he alone can take life. We are not God. And, and oftentimes in these difficult passages, that can be uh, maybe that which we need the most. Because today, uh, Micah 3, 1 through 12 is certainly, once again, a word of condemnation from the Lord. And this is a bit of a unique word of condemnation. Up to this point, God's word of condemnation has been aimed broadly at the people of Israel and Judah. In chapter 3, however, God narrows in on the leaders of the community. He focuses in. He calls out both the political leaders. He's talking about the king and his cabinet and all of those who rule the people politically. And he also talks about these prophets of wine and niceties, as he spoke to in chapter 2. Micah 3 reminds us that leadership comes with responsibility, that God puts leaders in place, and he places a weight and accountability on them that should not be taken lightly because it has been bestowed on them by God, whether they know it or not. When a leader fails to see their authority as being in submission to and dependent on God, we see that the results are catastrophic time and time again. This morning, in verses 1 through 4, we see that the leaders have turned inward. They have become cannibalistic, if you will, and that seems to be even the language that's used. God had made it well known to the, that the leaders he had put in place amongst his people were to serve sacrificially, and that their role was to be there for the good of the people. In Exodus 23, verses 6 through 8, we see just one place where this was communicated by God. It says in verses 6 through 8, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far away from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe 
For a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. God tells the leaders of the community to stand firmly for that which is right. In this case, a poor man, he's saying, should have an equal chance when standing in court before a rich man. God does care about justice and a sense of that which is right and fair, and he's challenging that it'll always be the temptation of humans to be able to be bought, to make deals behind the scenes, and God wants his leaders to have nothing to do with this. Micah 3 starts off with God, who had spoken these words in Exodus, saying, Is it not for you to know justice? And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and the rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil? In other words, it's, is this not your number one job? Like the whole point, the whole reason for you being in this position is to do that which is just by the people whom I love. In Hosea, God said, my people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. Hosea, like Micah, was prophesying a message of judgment from the Lord. And the Lord reveals that a lack of knowledge is the reason for their destruction. But then he clarifies that it's not simply lack of knowledge, but in that same verse, he adds the phrase, because you have rejected knowledge. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because you have rejected knowledge. Some people lack knowledge due to ignorance. There are certainly those throughout the world. The reason we send money to Kenya and we support a church plant in that place is because there are legitimately people in that place who are ignorant to the word of God. They have never heard the truths of God's word. And so we invest fully in that, that the gospel may go to all places. Others, however... When it comes to the law of the Lord, like the leaders in Micah's day, they could not plead ignorance. They knew full well God's counsel, yet they chose to reject it, and thus we see God's righteous anger on display. In verses 2 and 3, we see this. It says, Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people? and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them, and break their bones in pieces, and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. These leaders of the community had been put in their positions by God to love, to care for, and to seek justice for these people, especially the lowly people. The whole reason for being given this power is so that your power might be used to aid and lift up those who had been, but because of cultural circumstances, had no power. We know that this is who God is drawn to, that he's drawn to the lowly. He's drawn to those in need. And so these leaders have been given their position for the purpose of loving and seeking justice, especially for the most vulnerable in the community. Yet, instead, God uses this horrific imagery to describe what they are actually doing. They were taking everything from these people. They were stripping them down to the bone, stepping on the lonely, lowly to gain more for themselves. And in the eyes of God, this is just as bad as if they were literally stripping the flesh from their bones. That's why God uses this language to help them understand the gravity, that which had become norm to them, and they had justified in their mind because of sin. God's saying this is how it actually looks to him. The political leaders of the day were motivated by the flesh. They were constantly trying to figure out how they could use people for their own profits. And God says, 
that he hates this because God is a just God. He is not swayed by the things that sway us. And he expects us, as those who are his, to follow suit in being a people who care about that which is just. When we talk about justice, I don't know how this has happened, but somehow this has become a controversial term in the last couple of years. We tend to take things that are good and totally biblical and we can distort them to our own. Over the last couple of years, a lot has been said about the term social justice. It's become a bit of a trendy word. And to be clear, like every hashtag that originated in 2020, almost nobody knows what the term actually means, only what it means to them. And what it means to them probably depends on what news station you tend to defer to. 2020's overarching message regarding the term social justice was that if you use the term social justice, then you uh, obviously, if, if you don't use the term social justice, you obviously don't care about equality for anybody of any sort. And if you do use the term social justice, then you obviously hate police officers. Like we could just kind of boil it down to a sentence. That's basically what we came to. I think we can all agree, and we've talked about uh, the truth that that message is false. And that's not, things aren't actually that clear. This is just another example of how the enemy has sought to divide the bride of Christ and has been successful in doing so in many places. Biblical justice is biblical. God, because God cares about justice and it's in the Bible. So biblical justice is real. And it is a gospel issue. But it is not a gospel issue in the sense that it is not the means through which one is saved. Our salvation is not the result of what we do for others at all, only of what Christ has done for us. And when that begins to be complicated, you get a perversion of justice that is not in accordance with the gospel because the gospel is not about our good deeds. It is about Christ crucified on our behalf fully what he has done the gospel is the good news that we are saved through Christ alone, not as a result of any works that we can produce. Ephesians 1, 3 through 10 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we see the fullness of redemption on display. In him, we have been restored to the Father. In Christ, we see eternal love and divine justice perfectly displayed in a way which we cannot attain and cannot describe outside of Christ alone. We see this displayed through the life and death of Jesus. For the Christian, social justice is not about salvation. It, is, it, is not a, it does not accomplish salvation, but it is the result 
of salvation for those who have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing and who live as those awaiting the day that God will unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The truth of the gospel is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life and to die a brutal death so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are his but everlasting joy because we were the overlooked. But God opened our eyes by revealing Christ. We were the homeless, but God made us a home in Christ. We were the lowly and God came to us in Christ. We were the guilty, but God paid our offense through Christ. In Micah, along with Jeremiah, Leviticus, Ezekiel, Matthew, and Luke, we see that God desires believers, those whom have been rescued by Christ, to care about that which is just. The Bible is pretty clear, especially in those places. Jeremiah, Leviticus, Ezekiel, and then Jesus reiterates in the Gospels that there are things we should care about as a Gospel people because God cares about them. We should fight to make sure that people are treated equitably. Like, that's part of what Mike is saying right here. Like, that should be significant, and the leaders were not doing that. We should work for systems and structures that are fair for all people, regardless of means or race or circumstance. We care about the lonely and desire their good. We should look out for the weak and the vulnerable because Jesus shows us that's who he's drawn to, and us as the weak and vulnerable are whom to whom he came. This is our team. Our team is that we care about what God cares about. It's not our view on a particular cultural issue or a political candidate. God's word is our team. God's word unites us, and Christ crucified is our only message as a people who have been redeemed. The world does not get to define justice because God already did that. They don't get to set the terms. They don't get to define the teams because God defined the team through Christ. And what we see is when, when that slips out of the hands of God's people and the world gets to define these things, well, the, the world rejects the word of God. And this is horrible in and of itself, but what makes it even worse and what Micah pivots to is when those who are supposed to serve God and his people follow suit. We're going to read now 3, 5 through 10. We see there's a, a bit of a shifting away from the political leaders. And it says this. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who led my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you, house, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Here we see 
that it's not just the political leaders, that the world is doing what the world's supposed to do, but that the people whom God has put in place to serve, to serve his people, are now serving themselves. They've kind of bought in, like the world seems to have a pretty good business model, let's jump on board with that. The people responsible for leading God's people in worship, that being these false prophets, they deflect. They're supposed to reflect the kingdom of God and they've deferred to the world. They began to share a bed with the leaders of the world. The job of these priests and prophets was to teach people about God's laws, to remind them over and over again in this season of waiting about God's covenant promises and to give godly counsel. They were meant to be servants of God, stewards of his mysteries, yet they have adopted a job description that is quite the opposite. In Micah, we learn a couple of things about the status of these leaders whom God had put in place. Number one, we see that they were motivated by approval of people and not God. In Micah 2, he referred to these prophets as prophets of beer and wine. They had a job to do, and it was not a popular one. They were to share the word of God with the people. Like, this is what got Micah in such hot water. In Micah chapter 1, the people are demanding that he stop doing this, that he stop preaching. These prophets, though, these other prophets, they were sick of declaring truth because truth didn't promise, doesn't promise a reward this side of eternity. Instead, they sought to tickle the ears of people. So they could draw crowds and reel the same benefits as the crooked politicians that they were teamed up with. Verse 11 says, Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Verse 11 sums up their primary motivation. They preached for money. Like they'd become motivated by the same thing that the world was motivated by, money and all the power that came with it. They were more than willing to give a positive sermon, a a promising word from the Lord, as long as they had been given what they desired. But they cursed any who refused. These prophets didn't really care about the people. They cared about having a lucrative job. They were supposed to model love for God and neighbor, these things in which the law is summarized but instead they loved money and power more. Make no mistake, the Bible encourages leaders being supported by the church. 1 Timothy 5, 17 and 18 tells us, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. But this is not what is taking place amongst these priests and these prophets. They're motivated by money and greed. That is the foremost. They are taking advantage of these people and basing their message around whatever truth they think will put the most money in their own pockets. This is the birth of the prosperity gospel. This is a tactic birth of old that continues to play out today. And what makes this even more wicked is that they are so deceived that they actually are convinced they're doing the will of the Lord. It says, Yet they lean on the Lord and say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Make no mistake for the prosperity preacher, the one who does this for money, who manipulates people to fill his own pockets. What makes it even more scary is that they did not set out to just start a cult. Like they actually believe, they believe that which they're saying. They've been deceived. In January, uh, we're going to take some time in between Micah and Hebrews 
uh, and to, to just preach on some distinctives of the church. And one of the things we're going to talk about in January is what we believe about church leadership and how Scripture guides that, what we believe about elders and deacons and whatnot. But I want to take a moment this morning, because I just don't think I can get around the obvious implications. I want to share the implications of this passage for those who are called to steward the mystery of God amongst the church today, that being pastors and elders. At Rooted, and we're going to talk more about this as we enter the new year, we believe that a deacon is a lead servant, but a pastor is a servant leader. And as a servant leader, there are a couple things, convictions that even come from reading about these priests of old, that I, I want to share today. Number one, as we, as we consider the weight of what's happening and how they got to this point, and we, we seek to apply that to leaders of the church today, we're reminded a pastor is a farmer, not an entrepreneur. My family has a large farm, a family farm in western Kansas. We've had it for over a century. My great-grandpa, who taught me how to walk, he worked that field his entire life. It's what he did in the middle of nowhere, Kansas. You wouldn't know his name. Few people outside of Clark County, Kansas, which you couldn't point to on a map, maybe, the, maybe Hannah could, but nobody else could, would actually know his name. He worked each day. There were cows to be fed, eggs to gather, manure to be shoveled, hay to be cut, stacked, corn to be planted, then cultivated, and then later picked and harvested all over again. This was the rhythm of his entire life. And as I recall what my grandpa did all those years, it hits me that his primary job was often just waiting. That was a big part of his whole life, is just doing what God had called him to do and then just waiting. I remember as a kid, we would go to the farm in the summers and often I would stand and just stare at the fields that to me seemed to be endless. And I would just stare and my grandpa would stand there and there was not much to say. He would just stare along with me. And I realized even as a kid that this was the line at which dependence was brought to the forefront. My grandpa often just sat on his porch and stared at this field because there came a point where that's what was left for him to do. He couldn't make that crop grow. He couldn't do that. No matter how clever he thought he was, no matter what new tactics, no matter what new book he read, he couldn't make the crop grow. He could plant and he could tend, but only God gave the increase. And the truth is that some seasons God did give the increase. and in many seasons he didn't. In many seasons it was just showing up, seeking to be faithful and being okay with the fact that God didn't choose to bless that harvest this year. I don't know what the full motivation was for these particular false prophets, but I wonder if they, ever, they just got tired of waiting. They just got tired of that. They got tired of just staring into fields and waiting and having to be content in the Lord. I wonder if the weekly routines had worn thin on them. If they grew weary of a task that required so much dependence, they're sitting there, they're looking at these political leaders and they're applying these entrepreneurs, they're crafting this thing out and it's going really well for them. And these prophets are like, I'm just sitting here waiting on a word from the Lord. Like, these guys are making bank. Seems like maybe I could apply a little of that and then it slowly went from there. They jumped at the opportunity the world gave them to start a spiritual business. My grandpa was tasked with caring for literal sheep that God created. And he could only do that by feeding them with the provision that the Lord also created and then praying that the, that the Lord would provide and grow them and that they would be healthy. 
And the prophets in Micah's day were not interested in that kind of provision, that being the provision the sheep needed. But they were interested primarily in what they could gain from the sheep. Because of this, though they cared far more about what people thought than what God thought. And when this shift happens, a preacher begins to offer something other than the provision the Lord has prescribed. Twelve steps to a happy life is far more enticing than a bloody cross. But on that cross is all that we need for life and flourishing. And God reminds us of that continually over and over again. If we measure our worth through public opinion, we'll always, as a people, give people what they want and not what they need. The essence of pastoral work is to bring the gifts of the good shepherd to his sheep. And in that truth, we are reminded of a second thing, that God's church is dependent on Christ, not a pastor, not an elder, ever. In Timothy, we see that the qualifications given for an elder, and we find there's far more regarding character than there is competency, like far more. And this is because by our own reason or strength, you can accomplish nothing. The church is a picture of what God does, which can be frustrating for a leader. Because like, if you're a great quarterback, well, then you're a great quarterback even if you're kind of a jerk. Like, even if you're kind of a jerk, even if you're a pretty seedy person, you can throw the ball down the field or you can't. And as long as you can kind of keep that in check and keep it behind the scenes, throwing the ball good will work out. If you're a plumber, you can it be a super, you can be a corrupt plumber but if you're the best at plumbing, like nobody's really asking you any personal questions, just make the pipes flow. But the nature of the church is not like that. That's not how it works. In fact, it's that talent, that ability, that quarterback who can be this on the outside, but this is who he really is on the inside. When that takes place in the church, God brings it to the surface because God will have nothing to do with it. And we see that's beginning what's happening in Micah's day. Like the people are reflecting the, these priests that their hearts have changed. They're not, they're not seeking the Lord. They're relying on their ability, their ability to give the people what they want. A pastor, an elder, is merely an instrument through which the Lord does his work. God is no more dependent on a pastor than a carpenter is dependent on a hammer. There are other hammers. He's a carpenter. He knows where to get them. It's not a problem for him. The carpenter is the architect. He builds the house. The hammer delights merely in getting to rest in the hand of the carpenter. That's his whole delight in the world is that. Beware of the pastor or preacher who sees himself as anything more than this. Had a, I wanted to share this in part just because I've had a lot of podcast conversations here lately. A lot of us have listened to some similar podcasts here lately. And maybe that's the, maybe that's the message as I'm reading Micah. I didn't plan to get into this. But when there, when there comes a place where a hammer sees himself as something more than a hammer in the hands of the carpenter, he's beginning to lose sight of that for which he was intended. Paul was an apostle, which is different than an elder pastor. But I believe the way in which he identifies himself is the same in which a pastor should. In 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how you should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. A steward is not a businessman. He's certainly not a salesman. A pastor is meant to be an agent of Jesus, dispersing his hope, life, and message to a spirit-empowered people. And I want to I close with that idea of being a spirit-empowered people. 
Usually, when we walk through something like Micah 3, we'll just go verse by verse to the end. But I actually want to close kind of right there in the middle with verse 8 this morning. In verse 8, we see that uh, in the midst of falsehood, sin, corrupt politicians, and corrupt prophets, Micah stands firm because he believes in God's truth. The world around him has abandoned the covenant of God. Yet Micah will not fold, and in verse 8, he gives us the secret, the means by which he is able to stand firm. It says this in verse 8, But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. In the midst of an age where everybody's trying to figure out who they are and trying to be something else and trying to be powerful, Micah is able to stand firm. And he says that the reason he lived differently than the people and the prophets around him was because he was filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember this. This is unique, what he's saying here, because this was not the case for God's, most of God's people then. Prior to Pentecost in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit only empowered, only empowered some people in order to accomplish very specific sovereign circumstances, such as this prophecy in Micah. Micah has not taken this blessing of the Spirit lightly. Maybe it's for that very reason, because this was not a gift that all God's people got to share in. Declaring, he's declaring here that he's able to teach and stand firm with courage and to seek justice in a way that is biblical because the Spirit empowers and leads him. This passage in Micah sounds a lot like another prophetic passage. Isaiah 61, verse 1 through 3, says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of God's favor, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Like Micah, Isaiah is fully aware of and dependent, dependent on the Holy Spirit that is at work. They both knew they could do nothing apart from the Lord. And 700 years after Isaiah shared this very word we just read, it would be quoted again by Jesus Christ himself in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 20. In this scene, the people are amazed at Christ's words and the things that he is saying in the synagogue until he goes full on Micah on them and he tells them that their hearts are too hard to do anything miraculous because they have no faith. And then as Micah experienced, they try to throw him off of a cliff. But Jesus wouldn't let him throw him off a cliff that day. But he would let them nail him to a cross. These wicked, hard-hearted people needed a savior. They needed a sacrifice that it was as pure as they were wicked. And Christ would be that for them. He would be that for us. God had promised that he would provide this sacrifice. But in Micah's day, the people were just tired of waiting. They needed a hope they could snuggle right up with in the moment that would make them feel warm on the inside right here in this particular time. And in Micah 1, we saw that they were placing their hope at the government 
In Micah 2, they're placing their hope in culture. And here in Micah 3, they're placing their hope in arrogant religion. And as we approach the start of Advent next week, we have to ask ourselves, is our hope in religion or Jesus? Are we like Judah and Israel clinging to some kind of religious birthright? Checking religious boxes and saying, is not the Lord in the midst of us? Or is our hope found in Jesus Christ alone? Because Jesus came and destroyed the concept of religion. He destroyed the concept of if you're good enough, then maybe you could earn some form of righteousness. He came as righteousness that we could never be. We could never measure up to. He replaced religion with relationship. We're no longer invited to simply know about God, but we are invited to know God. The spirit that Micah and Isaiah were empowered by now dwells in all believers through Christ. The term Christian is really not found in the Bible, but the term used to identify believers most commonly is found hundreds of times. In Scripture, we see that we are referred to as those who are in Christ. When Christ hung on that cross, our sin was placed on him. He was and is our perfect sacrifice. When Christ was raised from the dead, that sacrifice was accepted once and for all. As we uh, prepare to approach Advent, I hope that you're getting your heart ready uh, just to acknowledge this season of waiting and to get your family ready. Uh, we We like to make Advent a big deal because we believe it's very intentional and our hearts need to be reminded that we are awaiting people. In the midst of this waiting, don't settle for the scraps of the world, peddled by religious politicians or self-serving prophets. Receive Jesus Christ as your sacrifice and live by the power of the Holy Spirit. For those of us who are in Christ, that's who we are. Waiting is our job. Waiting is what we've been called to. As they were waiting, so we are waiting still. But we wait today with an assurance because God did what he said he would do and he will do so again. This is the essence of Advent season. By the Spirit's power, waiting creates in us a holy dependence because we wait with hope for hope. Would you pray with me to that end Um, as we prepare our hearts to be faithful waiters. Lord, thank you uh, for this day that we could come together into this place. Just be reminded of who we are. Lord, we are not very good waiters. Probably far worse than they were then. We just, our whole, Lord, uh, just even Speaking now, like it, it doesn't seem to be any kind of coincidence that the full resources of society seem to be uh, aimed at preventing us from having to wait ever. Lord, we are, we are slow to, to ever not occupy ourselves with something that makes the time go quicker. But you created time. You created, put in place the order at which the minutes would go by. We recognize that you created time for a purpose. That in the midst of waiting, you invite us to hope in you. You invite us, Lord, we recognize to acknowledge our dependence on you. 
Lord, as, uh, as we prepare to enter um, just a, a holy season, Lord, would you um, lead us to set aside um, times to just rest in you while we wait? Lord, thank you that because of Jesus, we do not wait as a people who are without hope, but we wait as a people who have nothing but hope. Lord, you are a good and gracious God. Thank you that you have forgiven our sins, that you've placed them on Jesus, and that you allow us to sit at your feet, to worship you, to walk with you, to have fellowship with the Holy Spirit in the midst of this season where we await your certain return. Lord, would we live as a people who believe that? Lord, would we believe that? Help our unbelief, Lord. Guard our hearts from all the things that we listen to and put our hope in. All of the politicians or prophets of the day, Lord, would we be a people who rest in, listen to, cling to and are comforted by you that we might wait well that we might reflect the kingdom that is to come while we do so we ask these things in the good name of king jesus amen